Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Well, this is really quite a different book, a different kind of book than I've ever had on the show before. It's called Detector Dogs, Dynamite Dolphins, and More Animals with Super Sensory Powers. And it's for kids, but I really would like to say kids of all ages. Written by two women who are science journalists and alumni of something I didn't know existed, but I'm pretty impressed. The MIT Graduate Program in science writing. Christina Couch, welcome to the show and for the amazing job you've done gathering extraordinary facts about the the animals, all sorts of creatures and animals, but making it fun and a learning experience for kids. But as a grown-up, we can learn every bit as much as a kid could. But it seems like I don't know. Are you in, are you hoping? Is the publisher hoping this will be in science classes for children in school? Oh well, thank you so much for having me. Um, we really designed the book. Um, I have a child. I have a three-year-old, oh. and we designed the book in a way where we wanted kids to be interested in the material happening in the book. We wanted teachers to be able to use it um, if it's helpful in their classrooms, and we also wanted parents and children to be able to have conversations where they are both learning things um, about the book. So we wanted it to be a conversation starter, and we wanted it to not be boring for adults as well. So we've got to pack in all sorts of wonderfully, sometimes gross. Yes, you're very, very big on mentioning poop and snot, which I thought was great. I could just imagine a a school age kid just like going, ew, ah, because, you know, but that's the truth. I was all into the gross facts and still am. Yeah. So I mean that, but that's part of what makes it so lively. And it isn't just adults who need to be interested. Kids can easily be bored by just dry old facts, even if the facts themselves are kind of fascinating. But the the book has drawings and cartoons and photographs, and it also wanders off into the weeds if you're talking about a dog detecting killer whales in order to save them, and then their poop, and then there's a whole thing about how do, you, how do scientists study poop to find out how the animals who are endangered are doing in life. And I didn't know that that was something that could be done. It's absolutely incredible. So t- let's talk a little bit about 
Ebba the Detector Dog, who is the, the first one in the title, Detector Dogs and Dynamite Dolphins. That's, a, that's kind of an amazing profession for that dog and her handlers. Yeah, I, uh, I came across Eba. Um, I don't remember how exactly I um, first in, encountered this dog, but uh, Eba is a dog who works with a scientist named Deborah Giles, um, who works for the Center for Conservation Biology at the University of Washington. And uh, Dr. Giles is a killer whale biologist. And so Eba is possibly the only dog in the entire world that's trained to actually sniff killer whale poop. Yes. Um, so... That's pretty cool. When it's super cool, it's super cool, and such a very weird um, case study for for how to leverage a dog's super super sniffer yes. um, for for good. Um, so yeah, I, I was really fascinated by uh, Giles's work. Uh, she goes by Giles. She goes by her last name um, in part because the type of whale she studies, she studies a population called Southern Resident Killer Whales, which are the only endangered killer whales in the United States. And uh, the, the whales, for lack of a put, simply are not doing great. Um, they're suffering from habitat loss and uh, fishery mismanagement and pollution and just a myriad, um, a bunch of very complicated problems are driving these populations down. And so in light of these populations declining, counting the ones that are here and figuring out how they are faring health-wise is becoming increasingly important. Um, it, is, it can be tough to track a killer whale, and it's extra hard to run studies on whales as they're swimming through the water for very obvious reasons. <laughs> and so one way that uh, Giles tracks populations and figures out how these whales are doing is by having a dog that is trained to sniff killer whale poop. Um, I'm not sure if if you'd like me to get into sort of how she does that or yeah, what's going to work for you. You mean how she trains the dog? Well, the dog, so the dog is trained. I mean, is like that what other... you're asking? Because we all kind of, uh, because there, I've had so many fabulous people on the show with dogs doing work that has to do with usually sniffing out drugs or uh, bombs or uh various other things that people or you know even plants coming into the into an airport i think we know right. how dogs are trained to, for specific smells and not for others but it's very interesting to most of us to think that killer whale poop comes to the surface so that a dog could smell it i mean i don't know where we thought it went it obviously didn't go into a whale toilet but that's pretty cool <laughs> that where the whale is or not far off maybe up to come to the surface this you describe it well in the book this gross gloop goop yeah it's goop and it's only some of the poop so when i hate to be the guest that just talks about poop on your show but also <laughs> kind of love that as well at the same time um, but you know it's a so book for kids as well as for grown-ups, and you know what is more interesting to kids than these sort of bodily function ideas but it's really important for the rest of us in ecology to understand endangered species and how are brilliant people figuring out how to, you know, learn more and do do less harm to the, their environment. So don't be, don't be don't be sorry that you're the poop person. <laughs> so when a killer whale poops, or when many many whales, different types of whales poop, uh, it's actually an, a, it can be a fairly enormous amount. It's so much that um, divers have named them poonados. Um, and if you Google wow. that horrifying term, uh, you'll see some pictures that are at the same time like 
equally disgusting and then beautiful <laughs> at the same time. It's a very weird timeline there. Um, so it's a lot of poop at the same time. And part of that poop floats to the surface, but only temporarily. So uh, whale poop will float to the surface, some portion of it for up to about half an hour, depending on how dense it is and depending on how um, uh, congealed is the wrong term, but how uh, consistent it is. Um, so part of it will float to the surface and it's got about half an hour before uh, fish will come and eat it or it disperses into the water column. Um, and so that's kind of where a dog like Eva comes in. Eva's job is to track these patties that float up temporarily so that she can lead Giles there to get a sample before the, the samples disperse. And this job is becoming increasingly tough. Um, Giles said that, um, the samples she used to get were roughly the size of like a large pancake that she's seeing these sort of huge floating poops um, that are size, like almost dinner plate size. And that now if she can get a sample that's the size of a pinky, uh, that's like a really good day. Wow. So the poops are shrinking in part because the whales are, are starving and they're not getting the nutrition that they need. And so having a dog that is incredibly well-trained to find these poops from very far away. Eva can sniff a poop for up to 20 football fields away. Um, has, has become a really precious commodity in the research world. It's pretty extraordinary to, to think that on the sea, where you'd think there'd be the wind and the waves and many other odors, that somehow she can track that and that she's been taught to do it for, for the good of, you know, these, this endangered, we hope not to be extinct, species it's it's a wonderful the whole that whole section in the book about how noses work and how sensors work and comparing for kids sake but also for it's just as useful for adults comparing our noses to dogs noses what they can smell and how they smell it you know it's it's one thing that people say oh you know 14 million parts per thousand and they can smell that or they're 11 trillion times better than us. It sort of does, isn't the same. Your book makes it very real, very tangible, the, the sort of shop and compare between them and us. You also have a section on ferrets, which is really interesting because I didn't know that ferrets could be trained to do tasks for humankind. So talk about these ferrets and their little tiny fluorescent vests and harness. So cute. I didn't know either until we wrote this book. We were trying to find dogs were kind of the easy case study because of course. they're man's best friend and have been trained um, since uh, forever to, to do jobs for us. And then I was very surprised that not only um, were ferrets doing jobs, but doing really important jobs like cleaning pieces of a particle accelerator uh, back in the 1970s and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, the ferret chapter centers around a man named James McKay. He's a zoologist and he also runs a company that has working ferrets. And he has um, many different ferrets that are trained to run through underground pipes. Um, so the chapter sort of follows along as a a ferret named Cynthia is on a job running and uh, they, the ferrets wear tiny fluorescent backpacks <laughs> and they're used in construction sites and there's a string attached. And so the ferret will sort of run through an underground pipe that's tough to get to uh, for humans. They'll bring the string and then you can use the string to thread a new pipe through. Um, but I do, all, can I just say I, it's pretty funny that the first ferret they try, it felt a little like Goldilocks to me. Okay, suit up. Ferret number one, 
And ferret number one's a little too chubby. They put him in this pipe. Right. And he's like, sorry, you got to go on Weight Watchers diet. So he comes out. The next one they send in, a little too timid. She's like, I'm not into this. And then finally, Cynthia is the brave and bold one who gets the job. It, it's so real, you know, every, that ferrets have their own personalities and willingness to work on a given day. It, you just bring it all to life in a way that isn't just, yes, we can use animals for our own good. It's more like they're part, either they want to do the job or they don't, right? Yeah, one of the things that I found really interesting was the relationship that uh, handlers had with these animals. And yes. They, these animals very much have their own personality and very much have days where they want to work or when they don't. Or um, it, it seemed to be um, that relationship between the handlers and the animals uh, were much deeper than I originally estimated. And it was really fascinating to talk to somebody like James McKay, who could say, you know, we bring a team of ferrets out specifically because we really want to be careful about, you know, who's, who's feeling up to the job <laughs> and is the chemistry right. And uh, are all the, the factors lining up so that this ferret could do this job? Um, so, and yeah, if not, I, and I if not, no harm, no foul, you still get dinner. You know, if you don't want to do it, that's okay. We oh, got somebody else on the team that can step step up. It's like a relay race, but but not exactly because not everybody wants to necessarily run the race today. If you make it really very genuine and, and very real what these animals can do and what they've been trained to do, but also the respect that their handlers and the other people have for whether they're able in that moment. Are you a little too chubby? Or are you a little too timid? It's okay. We got your back. We've got somebody else. Just um, one more species that, that you concentrated on that are really cool are the brush abatement goats. I mean, these are very serious workers, the gobbling goats. I had heard, I don't know if it's true, or it probably is, that they were using mini goats, pygmy goats, in some vineyards, I think in maybe in California or maybe in Europe, to eat the the weeds that rather than mm. by hand weeding the vineyard. I never understood why the goat didn't eat the entire grapevine, but that's another story. But your gobbling goats are, are good for forest fires, which is a big topic nowadays. And they're they're kind of wonderfully semi trained. They're basically doing what they do, right? Yeah, they're not really, they're not trained at all, actually. Right. Uh, the goats are just naturally hungry. They naturally eat um, the brush and sort of thorny things that help fires ignite and move vertically. Um, so one of the big problems, especially with wildfires, is um, sort of how the fire, how the fuel works uh, within these very, very old forests. So you have a fire that oftentimes will either start um by lightning or by human intervention that starts on the forest floor and then quickly moves up. Uh, the goats are really, the thing that they do best is preventing fires from moving vertically and making inroads for firefighters to get in in places where, you know, where they wouldn't have otherwise. And so the goats are not trained at all. Um, and it was such a pleasure to talk to the Johnny Gonzalez of ELM Goats is the person that we profiled. Uh, he just owns a lot of goats and then brings them in to do their thing. So he sets up a pen where the goats need to eat, and then the goats just, just kind of have at it and have a regular, just a regular day, and then they go back home. Um, there's no training necessary. It, they're, very, they're absolutely following their natural diets anyway. Uh, ELM goats actually uses, um, or there are 
fire abatement places that have goats and use dogs to protect the goats in addition to um, temporary fencing around it to pre- protect the goats from predators as well as from um, you know people who want to come by and mess with them and that kind of thing. Um, oh. So it was an interesting case study of you've got these goats, but then you also have dogs working with the goats. Um, I yeah, I'm just I'm rambling at this point. I no, no, it's fine. I mean, it's it's what's really lovely is just to see all these different species that that you not only talk about the jobs they can do or the way they can be put to use, but then there's a whole section on strong spit and stomachs and how does a goat spit and stomach work to be able to take in stuff that no other creature could possibly want to chew or swallow. And that's something none of us have really considered. You know, you sort of hear, oh, gee, I heard a goat can eat a tin can. Well, I don't know if that's true. But after reading about their stomachs, it seems that one way or another, they can take in stuff that that nobody else would want to chew. And that's really valuable. It's valuable if you're clearing an area or if you have very poor land and you want to have, you know, animals of some kind. They can live on practically nothing. Or something that nobody else wants. It's something of, of no value to anybody else. Christina, the book is so great. I know that soon I'm going to be talking to your co-author, Kara, about some of the other critters in the book. But it's just such a wonderful book and such a delightful experience. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's like going on some kind of a, an interesting kind of safari with people who are trained in the MIT graduate program in science writing, I at some point would love to know, how did you even find that there was a graduate program? But we've run out of time. But the book is, is just completely diverting. And I think you've done a wonderful job. And many, many people of all ages will get a big kick out of it. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food, Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.